Hi, I'm Jason Soto. And I'm Lisa Leahy. And we're the host of Between the Scares, a podcast that takes a look at every movie that Blumhouse Productions has made. You may not recognize the name, but they have made some of your favorite horror movies like Paranormal Activity, Ouija, and Insidious. Yeah, Jason, but they've also made stupid movies like The Fever and Best Night Ever and Hysterical Blindness. Yeah, those two. But they also did Whiplash, Get Out, and Us. And we're going to cover it all. Hey, did you know that Jason Blum also produced that Gem and the Holograms live-action movie? He did that? Uh-huh. Ugh. Fine. But then you have to watch The Green Inferno. Uh... So listen to Between the Scares on Anchor, Apple, Google, Amazon, or our home location at rabbitholepodcast.com. I think it's about time that I give you some behind-the-scenes details on how this podcast works. Now, is this an excuse because I couldn't think of any other opening for this movie? No, and you can never, ever prove that. I dare you to find evidence of that. Anyway, here's some inside dirt on how That's the Bomb Yo works. Now, first and foremost, when I came up with this idea and show, I wrote a list of 90 movies from the 90s that, at the time... I thought not only were important movies, both present day and back in the 90s, I put in a lot of good, objectively good movies. Movies that won Oscars, got a lot of acclaim, people seemed to really love when they came out. I wrote out 90 of them. Okay, that's a lie. I only thought of maybe 30 movies like that. Then I threw in some movies that I love that nobody else seemed to like, and that took the list up to 50. Then I asked my friends for suggestions, even ones they'd love to come on and talk about. And then I forgot to write their names next to the name of the movies they suggested. Oops, my bad. I got down to 88 and looked up maybe underrated movies from the 90s, and this took me to 100. Then I made some cuts, got back down to 80, and just said fuck it and added 10 movies that were neither objectively good favorites, or critically acclaimed, and then thought of some movies that I never actually thought of, made some more cuts, and finally landed on the 90 hella rad movies from the 90s. Then came the question of, how do I pick what movie to talk about next? That's going to be tough. Should I just pick 90 people, show them the list, and have them each pick a movie they want to talk about? Ha! Joke's on you. I don't know 90 people. I know maybe 15 people tops, and everyone else just barely tolerates me because they know I'm sensitive and would lock myself in my house and drink myself like Nicolas Cage and leave in Las Vegas, which is not on the list. No, I decided to randomize it by putting the movies on a wheel, spin it 10 times, write down those 10 films, and then find people willing to talk about those movies with me for 45 minutes to an hour. And so far, that method has been working out for me. Yes, I do have some repeated people come on. Hell, in a few episodes from now, Dylan Fields, who's going to make his historic fourth appearance on this show. I mean, what can I say? He shares my love of 90s movies. Okay, now that's how the show was created and how the movies are picked. So what happens next? What happens when it's time to make an actual episode? First and foremost, I look for a guest... And when no one willingly comes on, I beg and cry until someone feels sorry enough for me. And they say, fine, I'll do your stupid show. Now stop crying. Then I rewatch the movie. And when I rewatch the movie, I try to watch it as someone watching it in the 90s and how the movie aged here in the present. I make notes on things I never noticed. I think of questions to ask the guests. I think if I want to discuss the entire movie blow by blow or just have a general discussion, I ponder if my guests would have anything interesting to say about the movie and think of discussion, discussion sparking questions. I read up on IMDb trivia and Wikipedia, which is where I get the bulk of my information from. Then I sit in front of my computer and think about the monologue, the bit I do before I introduce the show and the guests. What angle am I going to take the monologue? Typically, I like to start with something not related to the movie to throw people off, 
or to make people wonder what the connection is going to be. Now, if you recall the last episode, I started talking about Paul Rubens and Pee Wee Herman. What did he have to do with the crow? Was he even in the crow? Where is he going with this? Sometimes I'll make it a personal story that connects me to the movie somehow. Or I'll talk about an event that's related to the movie. Which leads to this monologue we're doing now. I almost did a whole thing about L.A. in the 90s and how terrible it was. And how the screenwriter took inspiration from real life and showed us what L.A. was like at that time. Plus, during the making of this movie, the Rodney King verdict was read and there were riots for a few days that delayed production, which is all sort of ironic when you know what happens in the movie. L.A. in the 90s was a hellhole. Nowadays, it's all glitz and glam and all Kardashian'd up, but back in the 90s, gangs, police violence, homelessness, and traffic. Now, we don't have gangs anymore. Isn't that nice? As for a personal connection, I saw it when it came out on video when I was 12 or 13. I thought it was a great movie, and I watched it over and over again. Thought it was a great movie, but never found anyone else who had seen the damn thing. Now, it's some kind of underrated 90s films that no one really talks about anymore. And it's a shame. It's a great movie. Anyway, after I find a way to tie my monologue to the movie, then I start giving you facts about the movie. Which leads me to tell you more tidbits about the movie. Falling Down came out on February 26, 1993, was budgeted for $25 million and made back $96 million. That's not bad, honestly. The screenplay was written by Eb Rosemith, who has a small cameo in the film as the guy in the beginning who tells the highway cop and our lead cop, Prendergast, played by Robert Duvall, that the main character, the nameless man only known as Defense, played by Michael Douglas, the owner of the abandoned car, walked off the highway and is in linoleum myself after everyone else flashes their badge. As I previously stated, Smith was inspired by current events happening in L.A. in the early 90s, saying, quote, To me, even though the movie deals with complicated urban issues, it really is just about one basic thing. The main character represents the old power structure of the U.S. that has now become archaic and, hopefully, and hopelessly lost. For both of them, it's a just or die time. That is pretty damn deep about a movie where a guy goes on a destructive journey through L.A. Now, I mentioned Michael Douglas being the star. Uh, when he read the script, he loved it and immediately signed on for the role, even taking a pay cut so it could get made under budget. And to this day, he says this is his favorite role that he has ever played. That's fucking saying something considering everything Michael Douglas has done before and since this. And also Robert Duvall plays Detective Prendergast, a cop who is trying to survive his last day on the force. Uh, get home to his overbearing wife, played by legendary actress Tuesday Weld. But some flat-top spectacled guy is shooting up random people in L.A. and can't get anybody to listen to him. Barbara Hershey plays Beth, the main character's former wife, who is trying to throw a birthday party for her daughter, but is afraid that her former husband is going to show up and cause all kinds of trouble. The movie does a great job in showing how nobody takes women seriously, especially in domestic violence situations. And Rachel Tocohen, uh makes an appearance as a fellow police officer, the only one who's nice to Prendergast and willing to listen to his theories about a guy in a tie going around shooting at phone booths and gang members. Now, Rachel Tocohen, uh shows up in tons of 90s movies, last seen on this show in Con Air. I'm sure she will show up in future episodes. And finally, this was directed by Joel Schumacher, who had a wonderful directing career until he decided to make Batman movies and then nobody could take him seriously. But this does feel like a Joel Schumacher movie, and honestly, I couldn't see anybody else directing this. Anyway, after I present all the information, I wrap up the monologue with a joke and then do not one, but two introductions which I have to tell the guests because sometimes people get confused and think I'm starting the show after the first introduction. But yeah, there's two introductions. Why? I don't know. Just fun. 
And that, my friends, is how an episode of That's the Bomb Yo goes. Hopefully you enjoyed this inside look into how the show is made. I promise, from here on out, I'll have proper monologues. You ready for introduction number one? Today on That's the Bomb Yo, I welcome my friend and podcaster, Elwood Jones, as we tell you why Falling Down is a hella rad movie from the 90s. Now let's go meet some nice policemen. They're good guys. Come on, let's go. I'm the bad guy? Yeah. How'd that happen? I did everything they told me to. Did you know I build missiles? Yeah. I help to protect America? You should be rewarded for that. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's the Bomb, yo, 90 hella rad movies from the 90s. I am your host, Jason Soto. My guest today is the host of not one, but two podcasts, the Movies and Tea podcast and the Asian Cinema Film Club podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts from. It is Elwood Jones. Hello, Elwood. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's nice to talk to you after quite a long time i think the last time we hung out we were talking about what a thousand and one maniacs on oh yeah many more ago wouldn't it yeah on my old the layer of the unwanted yeah that's right yes that's right yes um yeah it's been a while um so, um i am sorry to tell you that you are not the first brit that i had on the podcast you no. are my second <laughs> you are my second and for some reason I always seem to get British people on the most American movies ever made because as much as I'm sure this movie is popular worldwide, this movie can only take place in America. (laughs) Pretty much so. I think there's a lot of what we assume to be like American culture running throughout this and certainly asks a lot of questions about American culture, American sort of government and just the way that America is run as a whole. I think if we were to shoot this in any other country, it would be a very different movie. Um, and I think it's a film which sort of like perfectly lends itself to its location and, and setting as we obviously see it's not just about time, but also about place. Right. And, you know, it makes me wonder, like, um, if this were set in, you know, London, England, wherever, like, what would a what would a guy, a British guy going on a rampage look like? Like, what would he do? Because I know guns is outlawed where you're from. Yeah. So, like, would it just be a bunch of knife fights? Would he be throwing beer bottles? Like, what would he be doing? Well, first of all, you would have to move it out of any major city because... Like, if you go into any major city, you're going to be caught on camera more times than, like, a Kardashian is. We have more sort of, of like, CTTV setups than I made to see. So you'd really be looking at something kind of rural. We'll be looking kind of like what we had with Dead Man's Shoes. This would be, like, you'd be in, like, some, like, mining town or something, and it'd be, like, taking on the local drug dealers or something like that. It's harder to have a rampage in England um mainly because i said where if you go into a major city everything's very sort of claustrophobic it's all very sort of boxed in on that grid system so Uh, it doesn't have the openness that we have with like la in this one we've got those wonderful wide open shots and even in new york you've still got like big open streets that you can photograph it's but with london or birmingham or like a major city it's all very boxed in so I would say we would be looking like a small town and it would be a sort of smaller rampage. It would be looking at be like one man cleaning house of the local sort of like <laughs> drug dealers or something. Yeah. Corrupt yeah, yeah. logging companies or something. It's, it's you're looking more like a walking tall than you would be like. Yeah. Um, yep, yep. Something like this or postal or rampage. It's it. We just don't have this sort of uh, 
the words that were the sort of like silly layout to lend ourselves to big sort of like cinematic. Okay, sort of, uh, no, that's fair. Like this, so. Yeah, this this really could only be said in L.A. Like, I can't imagine New York because he would get to the first person and they would just argue back and forth for 20 minutes. And <laughs> then he would probably get punched in the face and then they would go get a pizza together. That's probably what the New York version of Falling Down would be like. So this could only take place in L.A. Um, and as I mentioned, the screenwriter, um, you know, who lived in L.A., he based this on the current time that was happening back in the very early nineties, um, where everything was just like, everyone was on like on, on edge because it was like, you know, there were a lot of riots happening. The Rodney King verdict was happening as they were filming this. And ironically, they had to shut down production for two days because of the riots. Um, and then, you know, just, there was just gangs everywhere. There was a lot of drive by shootings. Um, like the movie depicts very faithfully how LA was like back then. Um, and I'm just kind of glad it's not like that now, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's still homelessness going on. Um, but I don't hear a lot about gangs anymore coming from LA. Um, and I don't hear a lot of, you know, like now when they talk about LA, it's all like fashion and movie stars and award shows and, you know what I mean? Like, I don't hear about the violence coming from L.A. anymore. No, I think uh, when it comes to, like, L.A., I think much like New York, it's all sort of, like, been pushed to one side. It, we've, we sort of, like, have, have cleaned it up to an extent. And I think if you look at New York, you've obviously got things such as, like, the Warriors. You've got Headlotters, Visions in New York with things like Basket Case or yeah, Taxi yep, Driver. Yep. And it's a very, the thing with New York, it's a very sort of twilight city where this is obviously LA. So it's all in brilliant daylight. It's like sweltering heat, which sort of adds to this pressure cooker of an environment that we see here. But you're right. As I said, when we look at uh, LA now, it's, they spend a lot of time and effort to sort of clean it up and they sort of plaster over the not so nice areas. I mean, when uh, you still obviously got places like Skid Row, which the Kardashians oh, yeah. visited and never yeah. got out of the car once. Yeah, right. past it, it's like yeah, oh, yeah. Wow, I remember hearing about awful. that. No, I remember hearing about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so the movie itself. Um, do you agree with me that a lot of people nowadays don't seem to talk about this movie anymore? Like, it seems like it got like swept under like a rug somewhere. Like, it's very underrated. People don't really mention it a lot. Yet, Michael Douglas says this is his favorite role that he has ever done. Yeah, I think it's definitely sort of fallen fallen through the cracks. I think there's several movies in the '90s that are just really phenomenal. It was like this or Copycat or Raising Cain, and you wonder why we aren't talking about these like phenomenal movies. And it also seems to be the way for like large portions of Michael Douglas's career. Um, he obviously has like standouts like you know Romance in the Stone and Wall Street, but then. <laughs> He has films like this and uh, Wonder Boys and and even like Black Rain, like these phenomenal movies that he makes. And they just sort of like have this huge impact when they come out. And then unless they got some like cultural sort of resonance, like Basic Instinct uh, mm. or even like Disclosure, they just sort of like disappear. And I think it's a shame for falling down. And it's more so a shame when we look at Joe Schumacher because the snarkcasters have like, got him painted as like the guy who did Batman and Robin and that's right. all apparently he did. Yeah, exactly. And you like look at this and you look at like eight millimeter, which is his other LA movie, and it's sort of like, no, he had brought so much to the table. Um and even like films like the latent crews, things like phone box, you just wonder why we're so obsessed with dwelling on Batman and Robin. It was sort of like, you know, he tried to do something different rather than just like replicate uh, Burton and his version was what the studio wanted, which was like neon lit uh, Gotham rather than dark and broody Gotham. But uh, I suppose that you can, once you hit like bat nipples, there's only so much you can do. Oh, bat nipples. Oh, bat nipples. Uh, yeah. It's a shame that he made two. I'm going to admit not that great Batman movies. I, I, I'm okay with Batman Forever. Yeah. I, I don't mind that one. Batman and Robin, however, is not great. 
I, I know it's got its defenders for some reason, and it's fine if you like it, but it is not a good movie. <clears throat> but you cannot pigeonhole a man like Joel Schumacher, who has a great filmography, into just those two movies. I mean, you know, he he's made so much, you know, before and since, um, that are wonderful, and um, I quite like his style. Like he's got like a weird style, like his movies, like two, if you know, falling down, for example, feels mildly surreal. Like you know, it it takes place in our world in a real setting, but it's like, it's like there's like a weird. I don't know, filter over it that we're like, like he does a good job of making it like we are definitely observers of something from the outside. And um, I don't know if you've noticed this, like in this movie, when people talk on the phone, he doesn't do the phone filter over their voice. It's, it's like, it's like, it's like the person that they're on the phone with is like right next to them. Yeah. And that, that adds to the surrealness. I don't know if you're understanding what I'm trying to say, but Yeah, certainly. I mean, if you when he does a phone call in this, it, the cameras are like cuts back and forth between the conversation. It's like kind of like a forerunner to what we have on Teams call now, where it will switch to whoever's talking. Right. Um, but no normally I totally agree, especially in like the nineties, you would have like that sort of crackly filter when they listen to the other person on the other line, but this is constantly like looking at the reactions of the other person especially when you look at a character like foster who's so intimidating um but at the same time he's just like a, a white collar guy just trying to get home and it always when i watched this it always felt like payback got like the tagline this movie should have had which was uh prepared to root for the bad guy yeah and that's the thing about his character like because at the beginning, you don't know a lot about him. You just see he's just this guy sitting in a car in a traffic jam. And he's just, like, overwhelmed by everything. Because it's also, there's a heat wave happening. It's, like, the hottest day of the year. And he's just in traffic. There's all this stuff happening. And then you're, like, starting out sympathizing with him. Because you're like, yeah, that would drive me fucking crazy, too. I'm in a hot car. L.A. heat all these kids around me on a bus throwing paper airplanes out of a window, fucking kids staring at me in front of me. There's a fly in my car. I'd get mad too. And then the more we follow him, the more we're like, okay, we cannot identify with this guy unless I'm a Royal asshole. Cause we find out pretty quickly. He's racist. Um, when he goes to the Korean grocery store and, um, and then, and then you're like, well, okay, you know, he's an older guy, you know, that's fine, we'll 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 forgive that. But then you find out like he's a terrible person. He was mildly abusive to his wife. Um, she's got a restraining order on him because she's scared of him, and he's so mean that his own mother <laughs> is scared of him. So it's like how do we identify with this guy? And do you think he's like an anti-hero? Certainly when this film first came out and you saw the trailers for it, it was all basically like, it was so easy to root for this guy. Cause he shows in there, like shooting at the phone box and like, uh, all the like vigilante sort of stuff where he's little, like sticking it to the man. And it's sort of like, you're watching this, the audience and it's sort of like, yeah, I've totally been there. I could, when we look at like heroic characters always sort of like you know they have the happy life for the happy wife and the nice car and the family and it's all like you look at a character and falling down it's all like yeah i've been in that sh- had that sort of shitty day where i just want to like get out of my car and just like start taking it to the man and this was like how he's been sold and for the first half of the film this is where we're kind of like rooting from his sort of like goes into the convenience store and like all oh, the prices are really jacked up. So he's sort of like, we're taking this all back to 62 and starts destroying everything with the baseball bat. And then it's like, he meets the gang members and it's like, yeah, well, you know, I hate gangs like encroaching on the local area too. So we, we justify with him beating the gang members up. So, and then we hit that halfway point and it's all sort of like, basically when he's like switches from the white collar to the army get up. Yeah, the army get up. Yeah, 
you get that sort of switch and it's a lot of like and he himself doesn't realize that he's actually the bad guy until the right to the end right um but for like the way Schumacher plays it is sort of like you may be rooting for it but let let's just switch it now and let's see how you think when we just sort of like have him so he is now just like completely with about remorse he's completely postal before he was sort of like correcting wrongs in society but now he's just sort of like he's just a man just heading home he's sort of like on this cruise missile sort of course and damn anyone who gets in his way be it like the guy on the golf course or um and it's sort of like just in i think there's few directors who could sort of like set us up with one expectation of a character and then switch it around mm-hmm. the halfway point so we feel that we're watching a completely different character uh so i think that's something i particularly like and i think it's real sort of credit to michael Douglas's performance here because until he came on this was heading straight to tv movie yeah territory yeah, but yeah. no studio wanted to touch it and then Douglas comes on and so he's just like, oh, wait, let, we got some money we can throw at this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was a big star in the early 90s. He was pretty huge. Uh, yeah. And for him to be attached to this movie made everyone go, oh, okay, yeah, you got a big name attached to this, yeah. Um, No, but even the tagline on the movie, it says, the adventures of an ordinary man at war with the everyday world. It makes it sound like this is a movie about just this normal calm guy. I'm just trying to go about my day. And then all these fucking weird people are just fucking coming at me, man. And he needs to like defend himself as a normal guy. But you're like, but then you watch the movie and it's more like, no, this guy's on the edge. He's a little nuts. There's something wrong with him. Uh, and then he is just taking his frustrations out on the world but then they make the things in the world actually frustrating things that we all encounter on an everyday basis. You know, we're stuck in traffic. You know, all soda used to be 50 cents. Now it's 85 cents. Um, we get the part where he wants breakfast, but then he's like literally two minutes late. And they're like, no, nope, sorry, we can't have you. We can't give you breakfast. It's lunchtime. You know, like all these Things that, you know, on their own would just be very minorly frustrating. But he's encountering these back to back to back to back. <laughs> and then he's just trying to go see his daughter for her birthday. So he calls his ex-wife and she's like, no, you can't come here. We got a restraining order. You're not allowed to be here. So that's adding fuel to his fire. And then it's hot. He's got a hole in his shoe. <laughs> There's just so much going on that they just all built in onto this guy who was already going crazy to begin with. And then he just fucking goes nuts. Um, I was reading a thing on there on, I feel it was IMDb trivia or somewhere that was like, um, there's a scene where, um, well, he, he pisses off some gang members and they find him and they try to do a try by shooting. They miss somehow. I don't know. I was watching that scene yesterday, and I'm like, how the fuck did they hit everything around him, but they don't even, like, scratch him? Like, like this is this could only happen, like, in a movie world, because that just made no sense. Because you see things, like, next to him getting shot at, and people are getting shot at around him, and he's like, nope, I got no scratch on me. Um, th- that, that always, like, fascinates me, that scene. Um... But then he gets the, the bag of guns, and so now he's got a bag of guns, and he's got his briefcase. And then he's walking through a park, and this guy keeps hassling him for money or something. And then he hands him the briefcase. And this thing that I read was like, that was like a like a symbolic gesture of like, he's giving up his old life, of his work life, his, you know, what a normal life. And now he's going on this violent, destructive path. Did you see that as well? Oh, definitely so. And I think there's so many like elements you can read in, especially in the first half this is, where he's when you look at like the bumper system is sort of like looking they're they're asking for like that like Jesus is his savior and he's like contrasted with like the um the bumper sticker that says, How's my driving bite me or whatever it says and it's like all these like elements of violence around him and this it's all soundtrack to the noise of like road work. So it's like we're shown like this is a world where it's sort of like 
gone slightly out of control. Everything's very askew. It's not the world of 62 that he remembers where, you know, it's all like white picket fences. It's all still very much like the American dream and that him going out, the fact he's like the shirt and tie, looks like he's a Mormon. So he's sort of like becomes this purifying force this new savior that this world is going to need mm. and i always read it as like when you have the drive-by that everyone else gets shot it's sort of like this uh like in pulp fiction when the bullets magically disappear it's sort of like he can't be touched because he's the purifying force in this world oh. and it's really once we get to meet the neo-nazi that yes. it sort of like refocuses it because the neo-nazi is sort of like oh yeah you're doing this you know you beat up the asian store owner you'd like kill these gang members and he's like no i'm i'm not like you yeah i'm just trying to get home and it's sort of like refocuses what what he is and even when he has these moments like violence where he's like shoots at the phone box he doesn't get great joy in this he's not like a bronson as vigilante mm-hmm. where he's sort of like got this sort of pleasure that he's deriving from it if anything he seems like sort of like scared and these are like scared reactions that he's having to the situation right um, right it's just for some reason that he's got some like divine interventionist side so that if he's attacked by two gang members, he's suddenly got the amazing fighting ability with the bat to beat up these two gang members. Right, right. Um, bullets magically disappear, but they will hit everyone else. <laughs> right. He's just, as I said, he's like the the angel of vengeance. He's kind of like uh, Henry Rollins in He Never Died. He's just here to repurpose things, but obviously that idea gets sort of scrapped around the halfway point because we can't have like a purifying force and mm-hmm. have him still be like the bad guy at the end. So there's a lot of ideas that are sort of like tossed around here and there's ways you can read the film. I know a lot of modern readings the film has seen have played more into like the racist angle, but yeah, I've never read the racist angle because of the locations he's going through. These mm-hmm. are the people that you would expect to be in that area. You would expect like the Mexican gangs to be in the lower side. And you would expect obviously the uh, Asian guy to be only in a bodega because it is predominantly what a lot of like um, people come over and they sort of set up. We have the same thing over here. We have like a lot of uh, Indian and Pakistani families that come over and they set up corner shops. So mm-hmm. I always saw it as being like the American equivalent, obviously with like, Korean yeah, shop yeah, owners yeah. and that so and i think whether this is just obviously because you know came up in the 90s so you sort of when you watch them for the 90s your mindset switches to that 90s mindset you understand like how people were thinking at the time we're not viewing it for this like modernized where sort of like if you have a transgression against um against these people it's all like it's a more racist or like fueled act and i think this is why when he meets the neo-Nazi, it's so keen to establish this sort of like where his actions are coming from. Cause like the neo-Nazi thinks like, Oh wow, I've got like this guy, I'm going to give him the rocket and we're going to like, he thinks he he's found a friend gonna, and yeah, he's going he to identify um, with him. He's going to yeah. spearhead my quest. Yeah. Um, for years, I didn't realize the neo-Nazi is actually chef from apocalypse. Now. Yes. I was, <laughs> I was reading up, um, like I was reading some stuff up for this episode mm. and yeah, there's a lot of apocalypse now overlap because you got Robert Duvall. You yes. Got him. Uh, there's a, and there's a few other things. Um, yeah. It, yeah. There's an interesting overlap to that. Um, but uh, yeah. So, you know, watching this movie, you know, you're not sure. Should we be rooting for him? Cause you're like, he just wants to see his daughter on her birthday and he's going through these very aggravating situations. You know, he's getting stopped by the gang members. He's, you know, wants to get breakfast. But then you're realizing he's not a great person as he moves on. Um, and then the more the movie, like, per, you know, progresses, you know, we're learning all these terrible things about him. Um, and then on the opposite end, we have Pendergast, played by uh, Robert Duvall, who is a uh, detective who's retiring and on this day all this is happening it's his last day and he also in a contrast is kind of having a bad day himself um we get like a weird like this this weird balance of like we see another bad day happening because he comes into work um 
first off, he works with nothing but assholes. Everybody at this <laughs> police department are fucking royal assholes, save for uh, his uh, um, former partner. Um, but uh, everyone else, like, are fucking assholes. And so they put, they, they prank him, like, oh, you you know, it's your last day. And they put, like, kitty litter in his desk. Um, they make fun of him. They tease him. That one other cop constantly belittles him. The captain hates him. Uh, hmm. But and then he, but then Pendergrass is noticing, you know, all these crimes that seem unrelated are actually related. And nobody will listen to him. So... He's having a bad day, and then he's got his wife, who's super overbearing, who constantly is like taking charge of his life, right? Like she's she's like, like, oh, I'm gonna make you retire um, because I don't want you to die. Um, so, like, you know, did you did you see like the contrast between Michael Douglas's day versus Robert Duvall's day? You know, as well. Yeah, definitely. When we look at um the character of Pentagrass. I mean, Pentagrass is much like, like Foster. He's, he's a relic of, um, of a time. He's got this very sort of like old school way of doing things. He believes that, you know, there's good in society, whereas the cops are basically like the band aid to the situation. And if we look at Forrest, I mean, he's basically just the garbage man in hell here to take out the trash, isn't he? So yeah, Pentagrass yeah. balances things out. And I think his character is really interesting, especially when you rewatch this film, because there's so many like little things with him. The fact that he's been forced into retirement by his wife because they lost their child because um, she died of sudden infant mm-hmm. uh, syndrome. Yeah. 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 Um, and this is sort of like mentally shook her. So, she's having a hard time dealing with things and he says himself like you know i want to still be a cop but at the same time i love my wife and i can't do with putting her through this i like come home and the one night she thinks i'm a ghost because she's so (laughs) paranoid that i'm like gonna die on the job yeah yeah so by moving out to nevada to this place where she thinks it's paradise he thinks it's a (laughs) absolute shitter where he's going but he's this is the sort of like compromise he wants for sort of like peace in his life and it reminded me a lot of like morgan freeman's character in seven he's sort of like this one last oh, yeah. case yeah um and he himself is sort of like looking to get out of the city he's got you know his ideas of getting away from all the crime and scum and i think when you look at pendergrass he's sort of keen to the same but he's also the only one who's sort of like piecing it together from like the little details, it's all like a guy in a white suit and a white shirt and tie. And it's sort of like, he's there like placing the little dots on the map where all the other detectives are sort of like, well, this thing happened. And well, this thing happened. There can't possibly be a link. It's sort of like, you got Michael Douglas, like this caricature of a, a figure. He's there, as you said, he's got the buzz cut. He's got the white suit and he's walking through downtown LA and apparently no one can draw the- the line between the line he's walking because he's basically going in a straight line mm-hmm, when you mm-hmm. look at when he's on the map on the map it's yeah like, it's it's like, straight towards the city that or the part of la that uh the wife li- or the ex-wife lives in yeah it's like when have you ever walked anywhere in a straight line especially in la you do not walk in la they even make a comment about that in the movie they're like it doesn't take that long to drive from i forget where to venice yeah. And it's like they didn't even think about, you know, other modes of transportation. I mean, I guess they just assumed he'd be driving. But, you know, his threats sounded real. And so I would have been like, if I was Barbara Hershey's character, I would have been like, I think he might be taking another way to get here. He might not be driving. We might need to consider that. <laughs> um, Now, you mentioned the, the, the city he's going to retire to which is Lake Havasu, Arizona, and they make a big deal about this in the movie, so I I gotta ask. Um, Lake Havasu is most famous for being the new home of London Bridge, uh, which was very much a bridge that was in London. Uh, <laughs> it was built in the 1830s, and then uh, in, fifth, in 1958, um, some dude bought it, and then they bought it over from London to Arizona. 
Okay. As a... <laughs> oh, okay. Ooh. Oh, that had authority behind it. I gotta hear this. Go for it. I, I didn't know that I didn't know that we had dismantled <laughs> one bridge and put another up. It's just like I have so little to do in London. I hate going to London. So <laughs> it's, it, you go to London. It's like I just recently went to London to see uh David Duchovny and I could like I understood why he was like the pressure because he's like oh everything's so claustrophobic and everyone's so angry and I was like damn this is my fault <laughs> down right here just like the 15 minute walk I'm having to do to Cadogan Hall because mm-hmm. like everywhere I looked he was sort of like like business bros and like we walked past a restaurant and it was like 30 pound for soup and I said to my wife, it's so like, even if you had to like buy utensils and ingredients, you still couldn't get 30 pounds. It wouldn't still wouldn't cost you 30 pounds to make soup. Oh, geez. So I could, I, I think I had my, my own falling down moment there, but yeah. London, <laughs> <laughs> 30 pounds for soup. We look, what kind of country is this? 30 pounds for soup. <laughs> that was my breaking point. <laughs> that was the cost of soup in, in London. You, 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 you handed off your suitcase and you had a, a gym bag full of gu- or knives in your case because you can't have guns. Knives, a piece of wood with a nail in a the bat. ends. You, know? you could probably have a bat. That's the, probably the one weapon you could have. Yeah, or uh, a sword. You're allowed to carry a sword. A sword oh, in... oh, that's different. That's a that's whole Christ... different movie. That's the a whole Christ different had, movie. Uh, swords. When they started their gangland thing, they used to uh, use cavalry swords to uh, attack people with. So, yeah. And the British law says you can have a sword. You just have to hold it in front as long as you don't conceal it. So you can walk down the street with a sword and you're, you're fine. Okay. I want a remake of this taking place in, in London. Yeah. But he has to have swords. He's just armed with swords, and he's going <laughs> through London, and he's pissed off, and he's fighting people with swords. And that's the only weapon he's got. He doesn't get any other weapons. He it's it's basically the same movie, but he's walking around with swords. I want to see this now. We need to make this some reality. It it always makes me so anxious when knives or knives or blades are involved in films. I think this is when you work, look at like. The um, a lot of the Indonesian films that come out, things like The Raid, mm-hmm. um, and The Night Comes for Us, and everything's sort of like based around knives, and it just makes me so anxious when we're having knife fights. I but can, I can like, see that. I can see but that. Salat is a fighting style based around like elbows, knees, and knives. So, so it's kind of expected when you make a film over there. That's what you're going to be using. So yeah, yeah. Um. I view this movie, you know, him trying to get from point A to point B. Yeah. Like, has a, has a, a not exactly, but I'm going to just compare it to something like an anthology movie in terms of like every situation or encounter he has, it's like on its own thing. And the only thing that it has in common is him. So, like, you know, the first one we got is like the, the traffic jam, and then he goes to the grocery store. And then it's the gang members, and then the shootout, and then it goes from there. The guy at the park, the fast food restaurant. There's all these different encounters he has throughout the whole day. Um, do you have a favorite one of these encounters, and which one is it? Um, I think that that it's gonna be one of two, really. I think either the Laffy Burger, um. Joint. The whammy, whammy burger, yeah. The yeah. whammy burger. I think there's there's so many moments of That's unintentional comedy. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. When the woman throws up and he's like, I don't think she likes the sauce, Greg. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we got a critic. Um, yeah. And the other one being um when he has the rocket launcher at the the, the freeway. Yeah. Which seems like an odd comedy moment, especially at that part in the story, because we're supposed to be like switching our opinion from like, you know, the the vigilante that we can root for to you know the madman out of control um it's supposed to be like the switching point but instead we have like this weird comedic moment and, and something in the 90s it was all it was like there's this and Beverly Hills Cop 2 but there's a joke about someone having a rocket launcher and not yeah. knowing how to use it right and of right, course right. the punchline being they accidentally set it off yeah um no I read that too um yeah I like those scenes as well um I do like the scene with the rocket launcher because it's like he starts off as threatening. You know, he's talking to the, the construction guy. He shows off the gun. 
the guy gets freaked out by the rocket launcher, and then suddenly he's, he comes from this being this big badass to, how the fuck do you work this thing? And he's <laughs> just like, and then a little kid, a fucking 10-year-old on a bike has to come up and be like, you push this, then you gotta look through that, and then that's the trigger, and then this happens. And it's like a little kid has to tell him how to work uh, this fucking rocket launcher, and then he like inadvertently uses it. Because he's trying to aim for something above ground, but then he accident. And see, I, I have this weird almost theory that, like, he doesn't do it accidentally. Like, he intended to shoot the rocket through the sewer. Mm. Um, but also at the same time, I can kind of see it as, like, oh, he's kind of, you know, he doesn't know how to work a rocket launcher, so he has to point it down. It just was a happy accident um, that he blew up the sewer um, <laughs> in this, you know, on this freeway. And of all the things in this movie, that's the one thing I kind of agree with him on because it always feels like traffic, at least here in America. I don't know what it's like where you're at. But here in America, it's always like, we were just down this road yesterday. It was fine. And now today they got construction cones and they're tearing up the road. And it's like, why? Like, why are you inconveniencing me? We were able to go down this street yesterday, and now we have to go, like, three extra miles out of our way to get to somewhere. Um, that's probably the one thing I kind of agree with them with. Because, like, even the breakfast thing, I can get over that. I'm like, yeah. ah, I miss breakfast. All right, fine. Give me a quarter pounder with cheese. Um, but, you know, the traffic thing, I'm like, that, you know, I don't even drive. I just ride in cars with people. But that would piss me off, too, because sometimes I'm, like, trying to get a ride to go somewhere, and I might be almost late. And then it's like, wait, we were just here yesterday. There was no fucking construction, and now we got to fucking go around. So I agree with him on that. I don't know if you have one that you agree with him with, and you can quotes on that. Uh, it's okay if you don't. If you don't know if there's nothing nothing you agree with him on, it's fine. I'm just – I mean, I I understand – I understand being like frustrated in in traffic. I mean, I I, I constantly get turned off by my wife for being like rage for other drivers, and it's for myself. It's like that steam release valve, which is all like you know they can't hear you, and it's like I don't care if they can't hear me. I'm gonna use my interpretive dance skills to get across <laughs> to what I, what I think of him and his driving. Yep, yep. yep. She because she doesn't drive, so she doesn't understand it. <laughs> The oh, part okay. of the driving experience is that you have the right to abuse the other road users. That that comes with your license. Okay, see, I didn't right know that. To... Either. I don't drive either, so I didn't know that. So you're me, me yeah. and her are on the same wavelength. You both like being chauffeured around, so yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, I I find it interesting about this movie that we have a clear, um, you know, and you know, like kind of clear bad guy in terms of Michael Douglas. And then we have a clear good guy and Robert Duvall, but they don't talk to each other until the very, very end of the movie. Um, you know, they're not aware of each other. Like, you know, they don't, you know, there's not like, you know, Michael Douglas is going around saying, oh, Pendergrass is on my ass. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. he's just he's just going around causing all this havoc and chaos and blowing shit up and shooting people and whatever. And then you got Pendergrass, who's like really in the background at the police station keeping tabs of this guy um, because all these different reports are coming in like, oh, we have a gangland shooting. Oh, someone shot up a phone booth. Oh, someone took hostages at a food fast food place. You know, oh, the, the army surplus store. We found that guy dead, you know? And he's just kind of in the background, like, piecing it together. So he's not like, you know, it's not like a Sherlock Moriarty kind of thing. And I find that interesting. I like that in that movie, in this movie. That it's not like a 1v1 person until the end. When Robert Duvall's character, he's finally like, I got you. I've been ch- chasing you all day, you know, mentally a little bit, you know, behind the scenes. And now I'm here. I'm in front of you. And now it's going to be me and you. And I really thought that was different. You know, because back in 93 when this came out, nothing like that was ever done. It was always very clear this is the good guy. Hey, bad guy, I'm talking to you. Oh, I'm the bad guy. You're the good guy. And then there's like, you know, the the conflict between each other. And I kind of appreciated that. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, definitely so. And I think it's such a 
a great uh, standoff that they have at the end. I mean, we would have, it wouldn't be until like two years later with Seven that we got to see a sort of standoff of this quality. And obviously we all yeah. remember Seven, but we don't mm-hmm. remember falling down. And I think this time was the the only time I realized that when we get into that sort of final confrontation, because I thought it was a mistake, the fact he has the squirt gun at the end. I thought, mm. um, but it actually, the whole thing is that he's trying to taunt Pendergrass into shooting so that he can, his daughter gets the insurance money. Insurance, yeah. Yep. Um, and that they have this whole conversation like, you know, I'm going to take you in and, you know, we're going to get this this sorted. And he's like, no, because then my daughter's just going to see me as this man behind bars. And it shows such great clarity because we assume that throughout this film, he has all these moments of rage that he's been fueled by his rage and frustration at the world behind him, that he's not thinking clearly, but we get to the end and it shows this, he is thinking clearly at every encounter that he has. He always like him. I mean, he pays for the soda. He pays for his breakfast. Right, right, he, right. He has these like, surprise. he doesn't just like walk out of there um, and like going, oh yeah, prove my point and like takes the soda or takes his breakfast or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, he always like does the good citizen thing of like paying for his meals and stuff. Right. And even when he goes into like the, um, into the mansion and he finds like the caretaker and stuff, he still like recognizes, you know, this is the guy who's just like a caretaker who's like, he can't afford his own pool, but his employer lets him use their pool when he's out of town of business. So right, right. He, does, he recognizes his position. Um, so yeah, it's great that even at the end, it's still like he doesn't like go completely off the rails. He he always has these like this complete clarity in what he's doing, and I think mm-hmm. it's when Pendergrass faces faces off with him at the end that he realizes like this isn't just some like crazy guy going off at, who's like completely snapped and is sort of like uh, on the rampage. He's someone who's completely clear minded. It's not something that we've ever really seen before. Right. But at the same time, we know he's got from his past, you know, he's got this violent temper. He's had this sort of like abusive relationship with his wife. And that's more push the forefront because we can't just have Pentagrass sort of like shoot him at the end. We need to like build up the bad <coughs> things for him. And that's why we seem like um, have that encounter on the golf course where he like uh, shoots the golf course. So the guy dies of a heart attack on the, on the golf course. And he's sort of like, yeah, I was going to mention that because throughout the movie, you're right, he pays for the soda, he pays for the food. He only shoots the gang guy in the leg. He doesn't kill him. No. Uh, he doesn't really kill anybody in this movie. He knocks out the guy in the car. He shoots up the phone booth. But then we get to the golf course scene, and then here's where an interesting kind of you know debate could happen because he doesn't outright kill the old guy. <laughs> like, he terrifies him. He scared him. To have a heart attack, and then he shot at the golf cart that had his pills in it. But you know, and I'm looking at this has like a court angle. I realize I'm taking this way too seriously, but like he probably could avoid a murder rap like through this whole day if he you know was taken alive because he didn't really murder anybody. You know, um, the old guy he just gave him a heart attack, but he didn't know his pills were in the cart. He just was like, okay, this old guy, you know, fucking, you know, uh, shot a golf ball at my head. So self-defense in terms of, you know, standing up for himself because he was, you know, Michael Douglas was just walking by. He wasn't threatening the old guys. He didn't say, hey, I'm coming after you. He was just walking through. And then the old guy is like, okay, I'm going to hit you with a golf ball. And then this one, Michael Douglas was like, all right, I guess we're doing this. <laughs> um, so, like, that, there's a case could be made that he doesn't really hurt anybody in the movie. Um, and then you can kind of question the old guy a little bit. But then the question now is, if everything went normally, like when he got to the wife's house and she didn't get out in time, what do you think would have happened? Like, would he have... Would he actually have tried to hurt her? Do you think, you know, he would force himself on her and you take that however you want to take it? Or like, you know, like, do you think he was going to actually try to hurt her in any kind of way? I don't think he was going to hurt the daughter. I can tell he was not 
do anything kind of violent to the daughter. But the the wife, I can see him rationally like, you caused my divorce, you took my child away from me, and now I'm going to hurt you. Because she kept saying it was just a matter of time he was going to hurt me. So it was just a matter of what he was going to do when he got to the wife. It's like, well, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think that we would have seen any sort of like uh, male or female violence. I don't think if you're going to do that sort of like level of violence, the same as if you include rape in your films, you've got to be extremely careful. And I don't think Schumacher would have done that with the character. I think what we would have seen would have been something similar to we see on like when he's watching the home videos and he's trying to get his daughter to sit on the horse and he has his argument with uh, his wife. Mm-hmm. And he has this sort of like real dark sort of demeaning tone. And we get to see that darkness on the golf course as well, where he's sort of like, and you're going to die. And wearing that stupid hat. Wearing that stupid hat, yeah. <laughs> And it's like, wow, that's cold. Yeah. <laughs> and before he's been like bothering all the people in sort of the lower end of the poverty still flying, all the sort of other poor folks. And now he's over into like the mansions. And he meant said on the golf course, he's like saying, you know, this golf course, it should be like a park, there should be family sound picnics, but instead right, it's sort of right. like this private area for the rich folks to play golf. It's like how yeah. much space do you need? And I think that sort of level of darkness we see him threatening the old man we would have seen him threatening the the ex-wife there would have been this sort of like tense sort of like standoff where he's got this sort of real intensity this real sort of brooding threat of violence we wouldn't see the violence but mm-hmm. the threat of violence is going to hang over there and like just as we're about to hit that moment where it's going to like go the line pentagrass like comes in and breaks that sort of tension and they have like the showdown then showdown um, yeah yeah, yeah. I think, as I say, if he goes, if he goes back to his wife and beats up his ex-wife, it's sort of like you're really jarring your audience out of because we're sort of easing them into the darkness once we hit the halfway point. So to have him like go like fully sort of like um, into something that we, we as the viewer, like can't accept because male and female violence is like such a harsh line to cross, and when we see it especially in the sort of like domestic abuse situation it's so jarring to the audience and it would be very hard for us to sort of like have any sympathy whatsoever for this character um which we kind of have a little towards the end but we sort of realize that he realizes that you know he's the bad guy in this situation he's not and i think the fact that he's having a showdown with pentagrass who's very obviously the sheriff and he reverts it back into like these old western sort of terms it's all like oh i'm the the rebel, the outlaw gunslinger, and you're the sheriff, and we're gonna have the showdown. <laughs> but uh, no, I yeah, don't think... yeah, yeah. I think instead the the tense showdown we have on the pier and Robert Duval walking in with the popcorn, which I think, in one hand, it's a very cool visual and the way that he handles that sort of standoff. I think it's very sort of like very cool, but at the same time, it's all like you stop to get a snack. <laughs> on the way to doing this so yeah 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 the guy's like already terrifying his ex-wife on on the pier mm-hmm. because he realizes he's got nowhere else to run for some reason she runs to the pier i don't know why the pier she's got probably because of people probably because the people just there's a lot of people yeah there's a thousand that. people there so that that's probably she felt safer in numbers um all right. Um, is there anything else about falling down that we didn't cover that you want to talk about, like to wrap up here? Uh, I just want to say that the neo-Nazis secret lair is an absolutely terrifying sequence. <laughs> yeah. And you, you feel uh, the character's actual fear. Because this is like the up until this point, he's been like, you know, he's been threatened, he's been shot at, but he's never shown like any element of fear. And then he goes into that mm-hmm. weird Nazi dungeon and you've got like the Nazi Santa and you've got yeah. the weird Nazi porn and yeah. Um, yeah. And you feel this overwhelming fear of the situation. And it's sort of like built up as we build up to that sort of like climax where he eventually like stabs the guy. Mm-hmm. But up until then, he's sort of like saying, it's like, you're going to go to prison and you're going to get raped in prison. And it's like, he just has this like um, really twisted sort of like mantra of this in his ear and you feel that sort of like pressure building up like we saw at the beginning when he initially sort of snaps and it's all like the building up and then he like has that moment where he snaps into violence again. I did forget about that guy. So he does kill him, but I think that was justified. <laughs> it was fairly justified. It was justified. So, so ignoring that, he doesn't kill anybody else of note. 
So and that guy's like disgusting right off the bat. Oh, I mean, one hundred percent. Yeah, he's harassing the two gay guys in his store. Two... Yeah, and we forget, like in the nineties, like you know, we weren't so openly into like homosexuality. And exactly. You look at films like this and kids, mm-hmm. where like people just try to live their lives and they're like being openly abused. It's not like yep, yep, yep. <laughs> they're just like being like fully called out. I mean, we have like that scene in Kids where they scared punks beat the guy up walking through the park with his boyfriend yeah yeah. um yeah i do appreciate and the fact that he's like he openly calls him out and then he's willing to get into a fight with one of them as well Mm -hmm. so like so some real twisted mentality but i think how do you play a character like that i know it's sort of like the actor's mentality but like i'm gonna play this neo-nazi guy who has no qualms about saying the n-word i mean we ourselves have a problem saying like the n word we can't say that word but like if you're an actor and you're playing this role it's all like how do you get into that sort of mentality where you can play that sort of character it's so like something i've always like wondered about it's so like to be an openly racist character like edward norton american history x so have that I sort would, of like rage yeah i i would think if i was like an actor and i had a part like that I would just think of the worst things you could possibly say to any kind of minority. I mean, like, the worst. And that's what this guy does. He literally says the worst thing. I mean, he uses every every <laughs> slur that you're not supposed to use on every demographic, you know, black people and gay people um, and women. He really disrespects, you know. Um, oh, yeah. Um, um I can't, I can't remember her character's name. I closed the thing already. But the, the female cop, when she comes in to talk to him, like, he really disrespects her. So he's just a flat-out, hates everybody, regardless of, you know, whatever. But he he likes, you know, uh, Michael Douglas's character because he's going around shooting shit up. Um, but, yeah, that's just how I would look at it. I would just say the worst things you could ever possibly think of and this guy does. <laughs> it's, it's so like it's just like that level of detachment you need from yourself is sort of like to go fully invested into a character. And I think for a character like that, you have to. You can't half measure it. You have to like just go full force into playing this sort of character. But as you said, I mean, he's disrespectful to anyone who doesn't fall in with his worldviews. But it's like the fact he says it's sort of like, oh, why do they call you like? Police officers instead of police officers. Yeah, <laughs> officeresses. Uh, like, yeah. So with that definition between like a male and a female police officer. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, is there anything else? Anything else we didn't touch on? I think we've we've covered everything. I think it's yeah. still a really phenomenal film, and I was like fully expecting to like go into this and thinking because this is ninety three, mm-hmm. and just think we've like you know getting older your attitudes change the life and stuff and that i would um have this completely different opinion of the film but to like watch it and still find a really enjoyable film and i mean the same people on the internet who are like reading it in some both ends of the spectrum there's people who are like saying oh falling down is about like the collapse of white society and like you know these like they're really rooting for the neo-nazi guy then you have other people who are sort of like saying like oh it's like a very racist film because of the people that he encounters and the targets and how they're portrayed um so but that's what it was like in 93 that i mean there's no exaggerated characters in this movie that is exactly how everybody was like like the gang members that's exactly what gang members were like that is exactly what you know uh, people against gay people. That's exact. That everything in this movie, this is probably the most realistic depiction of anything I've ever seen in a movie. Like outside of him not getting shot during the drive-by scene, that's the only yeah. fantastical part of this movie. Everything else is feels one hundred percent real. The characters, the actions, you know, walking through L.A. through all the parts of L.A., everything feels real. And this is exactly what it was like in 93, uh, the very early 90s. This is this was how just society was. And that was just kind of, we just accepted it. We have moved on. We have realized the error of our ways. 
we have no now know oh okay we could be better but that's exactly what it was like so people who are like dogging this movie for being racist or oh it's against insert whatever here no that's just what life was like in 1993 and that was just what we had to deal with <laughs> yeah it's... who's old enough to been through there oh definitely so i mean you look at people like banning old cartoons and because of like the the attitudes that they have and you just have to look at things with the historical context of what things were like as i said i mean this is really capturing as you mentioned at the start like the rage of la at the time the fact that you had like the ronnie king riots breaking out the fact that you know racism and poverty the economic decline everything is sort of like of that era is sort of like encapsulated in this uh odyssey that his character goes through mm-hmm. yeah 100 percent. so i think everyone out there if they're listening to this you've not seen this movie i think you should i think it's a movie that should still be studied today um because there's a lot of interesting themes in there and it's a very good portrait of how things used to be and I think there's still some things that's happening in this movie that's still happening today. Um, you know, I think there's still something that can carry over to today. So, you know, the fact that it's largely a forgotten movie is a shame. Because good acting, good directing, good scripts, good screenplay. Um, just all around a wonderful film. Elwood, thank you so, so much for uh, coming on to the show. Oh, uh, I will give you a couple minutes. You can plug your podcast. You know, tell everybody what you do, what they're about, and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, so obviously I've got two main shows at the moment. We've obviously got Movies and Tea, where we break down directors' filmographies. Still far, we've done, like, Paul W. Sanson, Guillermo del Toro, Sofia Coppola, and we're currently on our Hiro Mirazaki season at the moment, so we're looking at sort of like half the Studio Ghibli catalogue. And over on the Asian Cinema Film Club, uh, we are every episode uh, we pick a film to highlight and we uh cover everything really from the art house through to really obscure like 80s anime we discover the whole range of things we're not just like one thing or another so one week we'll cover like kung fu movies we'll cover like j-horror and the other episode we'll look at something like highbrow like a scene at sea it's quite a variety of films that we uh cover and it's been great to cross stuff off my watch list for that and uh really subject Stephen, my co-host, to many things they probably wouldn't have wanted to watch otherwise. So. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, Elwood, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for uh, coming on my show. I greatly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. That's the bomb, yo. 90 hella rad movies from the 90s is hosted, written, and edited by me, Jason Soto. I can be found on Twitter at Famous Comedian, or you can email me any questions, comments, or concerns to rabbitholepod at gmail.com, spelled R-B-B-T-H-O-L-E-P-O-D. This show is a Rabbit Hole Podcast Productions. You can find this episode and several other great podcasts over at rabbitholepodcasts.com. You can follow Rabbit Hole Podcasts on Twitter at RabbitHP. Also, you can support every Rabbit Hole Podcast on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash rabbitholepods. For three bucks a month, you get early access to episodes and bonus content. Until next time, I'm Jason Soto, and remember, wear sunscreen. Copyright 2023, Rabbit Hole Podcasts, rabbitholepodcasts.com.